This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. It is, of course, New Year's Eve. Yes, not only has the year come to an end, and frankly, good riddance, but so has the decade. And the sad part is we haven't even figured out what to call this decade yet, and now it's over. Is it the knots? Is it the O's? Is it the zeros? I heard someone in the UK calling it the noughties. Sort of like that, but it really wasn't all that naughty a decade, all things considered. Maybe if Bill Clinton had still been in the White House. But it's hard to think of like Dick Cheney and think of the word naughty as an adjective. Creepy, of course, would be much closer to the mark. That is, if we're leaving out war criminal. But hey, this talk is no way to end the year. Let's do it in a, in a festive sort of mood, shall we? And, uh, you know, before we start the show in the usual manner, I would like to note that the decade really is over. I know there are those of you out there who are going to say, no, the decade isn't over until December 31st, 2010. These, of course, the same people that said the year 2000 was part of the 1900s. Radio Parallax takes the official position that just because a Christian monk in the 6th century omitted the year zero from the Christian calendar, because basically still using Roman numerals, I think they hadn't even introduced zero to uh, Western thought. I really think that's no reason we should be stuck with that ad infinitum. So we hereby declare, as others have before us, that the first century only has 99 years in it. Come to think of it, I guess the first century B.C. does as well. But once we agree to that, acknowledge the mistake, and move on, then we won't have to have these arguments anymore, although I'm sure we will be having it all year. But if you follow our logic, dear listener, I'm sure you will agree that 2009 was the last year in the aughts. And we can stop all this bickering about whether 1960 was actually part of the 50s and 1980 was part of the 70s, etc., etc., etc. We're still left with the problem of what we're going to call the next decade. It's not really the teens if 2010, 2011, and 2012 don't have een in the name. I don't know. I hate, I hate to think that we have to give up naming the decades. You know, the first decade I could think of that had a name was 1890 to 1899, thereafter referred to as the gay 90s. Since we don't know whether the, those 90s were any gayer than the 90s we just went through, we're just going to drop the whole damn thing, I think, and, and, you know, maybe not soon enough. Except to note that as far as we know, in the 1900s, they didn't have any, any real proper name for the first two decades then either. So let's quit talking decades and instead talk dates, as we like to do in this program. Our date in question being December 31st. It was on this date in 1904 when, for the first time, a light descended from a pole in New York City's Times Square to mark the beginning of the new year. And no, Dick Clark was not present for the occasion. On this date in 1911, the French physicist Marie Curie became the first person to be awarded a second Nobel Prize for her isolation of metallic radium. Eight years earlier, Madame Curie had become the first woman ever to win the honor. 
On this date in 1929, Guy Lombardo and his Royal Canadians played Old Lang Syne as a New Year's song for the first time. That was at the Hotel Roosevelt Grill in New York City. Boy, did Mr. Lombardo milk that as the decades rolled on. He always said that when he went, he was taking the holiday with him. Yet, we still have it. On this date in 1955, General Motors announced it was the first American company to earn more than a billion dollars in one year. We would add editorially that why while their methods of uh, earning these profits, which consisted of frequent stylistic changes while bolting on more and more add-ons to the vehicle, did work for quite a long while, their competitors' strategy of building better automobiles eventually did pay off. Sad date in 1965, California became the largest state in the Union in terms of population. There used to be a sign as one crossed the Bay Bridge showing the population of New York and the population of California, and you could see that we were eventually going to catch up. I've seen the population basically triple during my lifetime. And a lot of idiots out there would like to see it double on top of what we have now. Let us pray that that never happens. On this date in 1974, for the first time in more than four decades, U.S. citizens were allowed to own gold. We'd have to rank FDR's decision to make uh, private ownership of gold rank right up there with Richard Nixon's 55-mile-an-hour speed limit as one of the more boneheaded presidential moves of all time. And finally, on this date in 1978, the U.S. ended official relations with nationalist China which since 1948 had consisted of the island of Taiwan occupied by Chiang Kai-shek's army. Not coincidentally, on January 1st, 1979, America recognized the People's Republic of China in Beijing as the official Chinese government. Our quote of the day comes from disgraced financier Alan Stanford, who's been accused by the Securities and Exchange Commission of running an $8 billion Ponzi scheme in the Caribbean. Commenting on the indignity of Flying Coach, Mr. Stanford said, they make you take your shoes off and everything. It's it's terrible. Well, maybe if he'd made actual investments, he'd have found a way to stay in first class. Our quip of the day, and we missed this one some months ago, came from Cesar Milan, known as TV's Dog Whisperer. When he was asked for his advice to the Obama family on how to handle their spirited new puppy, Bo, Mr. Milan said, establish leadership from day one. You know, that might be a pearl of wisdom for President Obama that has more applications than, uh, than interacting with a Portuguese water dog. You know, we really like saying Portuguese water dog. Our stat of the day is as follows. Apparently, Alabama Representative Spencer Bacchus claims he's drawn up a list of 17 members of Congress who he says are socialists. The congressman is apparently undeterred by the ring of McCarthyism. Chris, we love the way Newsweek framed, <laughs> framed that news item, making a list and checking it twice. Our expanded joke of the day comes from Gene Weingarten's column. We saw it in last week's Sacramento Bee and simply must quote from it. In fact, we may, we may go on a bit on this one, but we think it's a worthwhile detour. Said Gene... Some time ago, I wrote a column about Dick Cheney in the form of a list of snide questions about the former Veep's forthcoming autobiography. 
That column generated a lot of mail, including one letter I saved until now so I could answer it during a season when people are filled with thoughts of peace, charity, and goodwill. This was the letter in its entirety. Dear Douchebag, expletive, expletive, insensitive reference to an alternative lifestyle, expletive, expletive, ethnic epithet, bastard. I would like to add two questions to your list. First, I'd like to ask VP Cheney how he was able to save your smelly, fat Jew expletive from terrorist attacks these last seven years. Second, how can he prevent your expletive, expletive mother from infecting, uncharitable racial reference, with AIDS? From expletive and expletive, they're huge expletive. You're a liberal, dumb crap, gutless, Weasel, un-American, expletive, piece of dog expletive. Numerous exclamation points then followed. Signed, un-American patriot. Said Gene Weingarten in response. Dear American patriot, thank you for your letter, which reminds me of some of the earlier essays of Thomas Jefferson. I could not agree with you more about your concerns for public health in these medically uncertain and morally ambiguous times. Happily, I believe I can ease your fears. As a Jewish woman of certain genteel era, my mother is unlikely to transmit any venereal diseases, particularly now that she is dead. For the benefit of the many writers of letters I receive, such as your own, I would like to create a new list here, not unlike the one I created for Mr. Cheney. This is advice for angry letter writers. 1. As you intuitively understand, letters that are written entirely in capitals impress us with their emotional intensity. I would advise that you adopt this form of communication for all your correspondence, particularly job applications. 2. An email can never have enough exclamation points. They strengthen any argument. At the Washington Post, for instance, letters to the editor are prioritized for publication entirely by the number of exclamation points. You use 92, which would ordinarily just get you on the waiting list for publication. Henry Kissinger, for example, always uses at least 250. Three, you should try to be more inclusive in your use of racial, ethnic, and sexual slurs. Your letter contains only one reference to sexual orientation, only one racial insult, and only one ethnic disparagement. You can do better. Here are some hints. New Zealanders call Pacific Islanders coconuts. French Canadians call the English squareheads. Aborigines call white people gwubs. And when they do something stupid, Jews call each other goisherkopf, which means Gentile brain. Non-dairy creamer is a North American term for a woman with obvious breast implants. I advise you to sprinkle these terms throughout your letters, particularly in correspondence with clergymen. Finally, four, you correctly perceive that any message will be bolstered by assurance that you are a loyal American, but you do not go far enough. Do you seriously think that merely declaring yourself an American patriot is enough to persuade readers that you are not secretly a terrorist, a traitor, or possibly even a liberal? In the future, include the number of Confederate flags displayed on your rotting porch, a list of your misspelled tattoos, and at least two examples of your ability to Photoshop Sarah Palin's head on the bodies of naked teenagers. Thank you, sir, and may the spirit of Christmas be with you. And Mr. McMillan, I think we need to accentuate that letter with a bit of Christmas music, and what better tune than the immortal James Brown's 
Santa Claus goes straight to the ghetto. Santa Claus goes straight to the ghetto. Hitch up your reindeer. Uh, go straight to the ghetto. Santa Claus Go straight to the ghetto Fill every stocking you find The kids are gonna love you so uh, Leave a toy for Johnny Leave a dog for Mary The godfather of soul may be gone He's not forgotten Alright, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for gender equality after the state of Nevada changed the language in its prostitution laws to allow for male prostitution. It was conversely apparently a bad week for Arizona law enforcement when it was revealed that it took the cops in Arizona several months to realize that the same driver was repeatedly triggering speed cameras and refusing to pay the fines through the ruse of wearing a monkey mask. <laughs> Dave Von Tesmer, who amassed $6,700 in tickets, didn't deny that he was wearing a monkey mask, but claimed, they can't prove I was operating the vehicle. You've got to identify the driver, and if you can't, it's not a valid ticket. It's a peaceful act of resistance, and that's what this country was founded on. And yes, we're keen to find out whether that excuse will stand up in court. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for neighborliness. When a Pennsylvania history buff accidentally blasted a two-pound cannonball through the wall of his neighbor's home. Apparently, William Mazur, age 54, fired the cannonball from his yard in George's township near Pittsburgh and hit a house 400 yards away. Smashed through a window and a wall before landing in a closet. Authorities say, thankfully, nobody was hurt. The state police charged Mazur with reckless endangerment, criminal mischief, and disorderly conduct. Mazur told reporters that recreating 19th century cannons was his longtime hobby. He said he was sorry and promised to stop shooting them on his property. Oh, Mr. Mazur, shooting them on your property wasn't the problem. Shooting them into your neighbor's domiciles was where the, uh, where the friction came in. You know, at this juncture, we may want to announce the winner of the prestigious Jackass of the Year Award, as perceived by Radio Parallax. And really, it came down to two people. But we do want to mention, first of all, three honorable mentions. Jackass of the Year, honorable mention number one, Justice of the Peace, Keith Bardwell, who apparently plies his trade down in Louisiana, denied an interracial couple a marriage license and said... I'm not a racist, I just don't believe in mixing the races that way. Yeah, that's being a jackass, but that was topped, we think, by House Minority Leader John Bonner, who commented on the health care public option by saying, this is about as unpopular as a garlic milkshake. 
Representative Bonner claims he's still looking for the first American outside the Beltway who wants a public option to health care. The time he said that, a Quinnipiac poll found 61% of the public in favor. And just as Newsweek magazine uh, admitted uh, several months ago that it's not often that a regular citizen can make its indignity index, Reginald Peterson of Florida cracked the list. Mr. Peterson earns an honorable mention for Jackass of the Year because he called 911 twice. Why? Well, apparently his spicy Italian Subway sandwich was missing its sauce. But as we say, it really comes down to two people for 2009. And I must say, we don't find much to like about Newsweek magazine uh, for the past six months, but their indignity index is pretty funny. And some months ago, the magazine awarded its very first 100-point score, which they gave to John Edwards on the strength of his cheating on his wife, who has cancer, and then lying about it during his campaign. Of course, his out-of-wedlock child with his extramarital affair did earn him quite a few brownie points, which are further strengthened by Riel Hunter's bio. She's apparently a documentary filmmaker, comma, actress, comma, new age spiritual advisor, comma, and astrologer. You know, a couple years back, we promised that we would talk on this show about uh, Nancy and Ronald Reagan's use of an astrologer in the White House, and somehow we've never gotten into that. So we must put that on our to-do list for 2010. We can make it a, bar, a bipartisan look at political astrologers. Riel Hunter for the Democrats and Joan Quigley for the Republicans. But in the end, Radio Parallax's Jackass of the Year Award could only go to California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> Why are we giving him the award? Well, the Sacramento News and Review's editorial cartoon managed to say it all in one panel. Showed our governor wearing a mask and dressed as a burglar, sticking a pipe into the river saying, Do people say I'm trying to steal Northern California's water like a thief in the night behind your backs? Contrasted with the governator, burglar clothes off, but still wearing the mask saying, That's nonsense. I'm going to steal it in broad daylight right before your very eyes. And what really got us going over this story, which we've been following now for months, is the shameful, the shameful presentation by CBS's 60 Minutes last Sunday on the California water story. In fact, writing about it in a blog on legalplanet.wordpress.com was Holly Doremus, who said, the day after this segment stank up the airwaves, Last night's 60 Minutes had a long story on the California water crisis featuring Leslie Stahl interviewing, among others, Arnold Schwarzenegger and UC Davis professor Jeff Mount. On the positive side, the story accurately portrayed the vulnerability of California's fragile through-delta water delivery system to a major earthquake or catastrophic levee break. But CBS News flubbed the overall storyline. In typical media fashion, it oversimplified the story to Delta Smelt versus Farmers, with barely a mention of the, of the coastal salmon fishery or the crash of the Bay Delta ecosystem as a whole. Worse, 60 Minutes swallowed whole a tall tale by the anti-regulatory interests that protecting the Delta smelt has economically crippled California agriculture. 
The story is demonstrably false on at least two different levels. First, while the San Joaquin Valley has had a tough economic year, its woes have not been driven by water shortages. The website then shows some graphs, which clearly demonstrate that average water exports from the Delta had increased in recent years, not decreased. Holly went on to note, second, it's not true that California agriculture had a bad year across the board. Farming has always been a boom-bust business, as overplanting gluts the market and tough growing conditions depleted. But 2009 was not a bust year. The California tomato crop, for example, hit an all-time high, both in total production and dollar value. As for the almond grower that complained in 60 minutes he was having to destroy his trees, take that with a grain of salt. Almond trees have a relatively short lifespan, so orchards are continually removed and replanted. California almond production was down 200% in 2009 compared to 08, but not due to any irrigation restrictions. The fall was due to a combination of late frost, a wet spring during pollinating season, and heavy bearing last year. Almonds remain a boom crop. He summarized by noting, So yes, California has a water problem, but no, it's not a problem caused by the Delta smelt or by environmentalists. It seems clear that before Arnold Schwarzenegger leaves the governorship next year, he plans to leave a legacy for Southern California of guaranteed water supplies, no matter whether it destroys the fisheries of the Delta or wipes out all the farms down there. The governor came to office under very odd circumstances, as you will no doubt recall, with the recall of Gray Davis. And although our, uh, our movie actor governor liked to come in like the man riding the white horse, uh, uh, brandishing a broom and explaining how we were going to sweep clean uh, the state of affairs in Sacramento. Turns out he hasn't been able to accomplish very much. He pays lip service to being an environmentalist like he pays lip service to a lot of things. But neither he nor anyone else has been able to explain how you can improve conditions in the Delta by taking more water out of it. We'll have more to say on that in the year to come and maybe later on today's show, but it's time to take a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned.